in kind of an estimation that I've made, I believe that the saddest word in the English language might very well be the word L-O-S-T, the word lost. And I want you to think about that. As we continue in our discussion, we'll be talking about the essence of Christ-centered commitment, and as we will be addressing the question or the subject of evangelism and to be evangelistic, and that each and every one of us as Christians need to have an evangelistic mindset at all times, at all times. I appreciate the song that we've sung, another song that all of us, most of us anyway, have been familiar with for a long time, Send the Light. And that's a call upon us to take that very seriously. The reason is, is because we live in a world that is L-O-S-T, loss. Imagine your child, your grandchild, being lost. We have four grandchildren, uh, ages, well, I don't know what they are, 12 and 8 and 7 and 6, something like that. I think I got that. It's ever-changing, you know. And as I said last evening, we're very blessed that they all live very near us. and We see them all the time. But I cannot imagine the horror of receiving a phone call from one of our children and saying, Dad, one of those children is lost. Can you? Maybe you've experienced it. I don't know. A very unfortunate coincidence, although it has a good ending, happened yesterday. Yesterday afternoon, a young man that's preaching just outside of Wichita, Kansas, that we know very well, he and his wife, as a matter of fact, he went through a training program with us in Los Osos not too many years back. He called and said, Brent, we have a situation, I need some advice, even of how he was going to handle a sermon, and I said, well, Sam, what's going on? And he says, we have a young lady in the congregation, I believe, 19 years old, a freshman at a local college there. She and her family attend the congregation where Sam preaches. He says, Brent, she's not been seen for over 25 hours. It was just yesterday. And he says, the family, as you can imagine, and the whole congregation just terrified. The good end of this story, and I don't know all the details, is she was found and she's fine and was dealing with some issues and But the point is, I know we can understand or try to at least understand the terror that was going through the minds through a mother and a father and perhaps grandparents and certainly brethren as well. You know, if your child or grandchild was lost, tell me what efforts you would make to find them. We would try to come upon every conceivable way to contact people, authorities, search and rescue parties, to do everything that we can to retrieve that lost child. We get that. All the drastic measures to find our loved one. But then listen, I want us to consider this. Because while that would happen, and if it was a prolonged situation, it might be something that would very well make the 6 o'clock news, don't you think? It would in our community, and I'm sure it would in this community as well. 
But then as I think about this, there are lost souls in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and many of our own families. And it is an urgent situation. Souls that are lost. Souls that are separated from God. It's not going to be broadcast on the 6 o'clock news. There will be no television drama produced to awaken the senses of the public. As you see often happen in these other situations of lost people or lost children. Notwithstanding, it is the most urgent need. The most urgent plight of humanity that we have is because we think of the millions, yes, even billions of souls that are lost. But then there's this interesting difference, too. There's an interesting difference with most lost souls. You see, people that are physically lost, unless it's a very, very, very young, small child, but people that are typically lost understand their circumstance, and subsequently, they're afraid. Oh, we've seen it with children before. And have you ever been in that situation and, and you're, in a, you're in a busy store somewhere, you're maybe at an amusement park, someplace where there's a lot of people, and, and we're doing all that we can to, to, to be watching our children, maybe holding their hands, and sometimes just for that moment they get away and you turn around. And we've all been there. I think we've all been there as parents, and that immediate panic that sets in your heart, right? And then it goes on for a few minutes, and then finally you finally find that child. And many times even the child is afraid and comes running to, to, to that child's mother or father. And especially people that are older that find themselves in some situation lost out in the wilderness, lost because they're out hunting or hiking and got misdirected or some kind of storm comes along and they're totally confused and they're lost and separated from the rest of people. I want to tell you, we see, we feel that. But here's the sad thing on the other hand. Most people who are spiritually lost do not realize they are lost and do not feel the sense of urgency about it. And that makes the situation all the more desperate. Because they don't even realize it. You think of how many people are your neighbors or your friends or your fellow workers or some of your family members that are lost and they don't think about it. They don't realize it. And there's no urgency in their minds about it whatsoever. To stress this urgency as we look at the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul in his second letter that we have does something in chapter 6 and verse 2. And he actually quotes a bit of the Old Testament out of Isaiah. Isaiah 49 and verse 8. And by the way, he's quoting from the Septuagint and why the reading is just a little different in our typical Isaiah passage of the Bible that we have into the New Testament because he was quoting directly from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of that Hebrew text. So what we find in this particular text in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, for he that is referring to God, for he says... And here's the quotation part. In an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Then Paul says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, Paul applies these words to the present time. As he writes this to the Corinthian brethren, 
he applies these words to the present time as if God were speaking these words directly to the Corinthians, even though that they were spoken originally to Israel in that historical setting. When it says, for he says, when Paul says, for he says, we find out, by the way, that this is from a present tense verb, a Greek verb in the present tense, which indicates the permanent validity and perpetual application of the passage. That is, we read this, for he says, for he says. And in that tense, I'm going to suggest to you that this is always going to have meaning and validity of any time and of any generation. Then Paul's own inspired, being an apostle of Jesus Christ, after he quotes this Isaiah passage, then Paul's own inspired application of the passage is seen in the emphatic exclamation that immediately follows. Behold, Paul writes, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And we look, therefore, at the immediacy, at the urgency of the timeliness, again, of its importance. Let me ask you. Will there be a time or a day? Will there be a time or a day when salvation will no longer be offered? Absolutely. And this is understood by Paul's use of now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Because Paul is saying in this way, in so many respects, there's no promise of tomorrow. We all know that. There's no promise of tomorrow. We have plans for tomorrow. Tomorrow's the Lord's day. There's going to be a few services. But there's no promise of tomorrow. There are a lot of things that could happen between now and then. We get that. And so if Paul addresses this, again, he says, Behold, now. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so it is. We need to see the urgency evangelistically to do what we can. To have that evangelistic mindset, even as Jesus had commissioned to his own apostles in that which was perpetuated and seen by the disciples of the first century over and over to go and to teach and to go and to teach and to make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. We get that, but then teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you. And we have this teaching and teaching and teaching and the urgency that is seen. Because so many souls in the world today are L-O-S-T, lost. And the clock is ticking. As we have a few points that I want to make for today's final session, why has it become such an urgent need? And it's because when we look at Christ-centered commitment and being evangelistic, it's about people reaching people. You see, there's a misnomer. There's a misunderstanding, I believe, in, in way too many congregations. And maybe perhaps congregations say, well, what we'll do is we're going to get ourselves a preacher. We're going to get ourselves an evangelist, and he's going to come, and you know, he's going to convert the town. And, and a wonderful thing that could be. And, but I'll tell you what, in most situations, in order for him to even get started on that, he's going to need a whole lot of help. A whole lot of help. And I don't care if it's here in Columbus, or I don't care if it's in Los Angeles, California, or wherever it may be. And we got to get that. Now, granted, and I take what I do very, very personally and very seriously, and as I'm sure Daryl does, and I hope, I hope that anybody that has decided to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
But I'm going to tell you that for me anyway, that for all these years that I've been doing what I do, how much I depend upon the brethren to help in this. You see, we have to have this evangelistic mindset where we are working together. And I know this as well. And, and we look at this and, and, and you come into an area. Now, we've been where we are for a long time. And we know a lot of people. And it's an area that even, even though we were gone for a little while, it's an area that we grew up in. And, and so there's some folks that I know from many, many years back. And that's created some interesting opportunities, by the way. Not too many years ago. And, and studying and baptizing a gal that we went to, that I've gone to high school with and so forth. And there's this years of separation, but we come in to know each other and an opportunity to be able to teach her and to baptize her. And I think that's about 10 years ago as I'm thinking about missing that and, and all of that and how strong of a Christian is, is just marvelous. And we still study with her every week. I tease her all the time. I said, one of these days you're going to get it. But as we're encouraging and teaching, but here's the point. You see, we had that long-standing relationship with Bay Big, but it, was, but it wasn't us. You see, what it was, it was a man in the congregation that happened to know our family way back when, and they ran at each other, and he kept encouraging and encouraging her, and he didn't quit. And finally she came, and then she remembered me, of course, from high school and so forth, and that still didn't deter her. But anyway, <laughs> but we began to study, and she was baptized. I'm going to say that, yeah, I did the job that I tried to do the job that I'm supposed to do, but it wasn't me. And it wasn't just Alvy either. And I'd say there are a lot of working parts to this, and that's what we've got to see. That Christ-centered commitment is evangelistic, but if you're thinking for a moment that the evangelistic mindset belongs to the evangelist and only the evangelist, you're thinking wrong. And I say that unapologetically. And those who want to take issue with it, well, you talk to Mark. Because we're on the same page. But I'll be happy to talk to you about it. What is this all about? Why has it become such an urgent need? And when we look at this, because the urgency is an emergency. We're talking about lost. You see, the urgency is an emergency. There are a lot of urgent needs. We've got an urgent need right now. Mark, you know, between every chance, he, he's talking to guys that deal with wells and pumps and everything else. We, got an ur- we need water. But you know, we're going to make it, aren't we? We'll be fine. And we may look at things in our lives. But you know, we, we, we might be having a baby born here any time. <laughs> and if that, when that time comes, that's going to be, the urgency can become an emergency, right? You get her done. You do what you've got to do. We've got to look at it this way, ladies and gentlemen. My, my, uh, brethren, we've got to look at this way of being soul winners for Christ Jesus, of what we've got to do. We'll be highlighting that as well. You see, the vast majority of people in the world do not want to accept the line that God has established between being lost and being saved. There is a line that God has vividly given to us within His Word revealed, that there is a line between being lost and being saved. And that narrow concept of salvation, as taught and emphasized by Jesus, is unpopular, is as unpopular as ever. You remember that in Matthew 7, and we referred to his, in the first lesson, about his powerful conclusion, those hear these things of mine and does them or doesn't do them. But right before that, as he's building this crescendo to the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7 and verse 13, he says, Enter at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to death or destruction, and many there be in which go in thereat. 
For straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to salvation and few there be that find it. And somebody asked the question, are you saying that there are going to be a whole lot fewer people that are going to be saved than there are those that are going to be lost? And the answer to that question is yes, we get that. We see that. And not because God is just not allowing people in. It's because of people's choices. And are people going to accept it? Are they going to follow through? Are they going to believe it? But I'll tell you what, what we've got to do, every one of us, what we've got to do, we've got to do what we can to give them opportunity to take it to them. We sing, send the light. We sing it, don't we? The urgency is an emergency. Now, I know the general attitude, and we just have to learn to take this, to accept this. The general attitude is, you know, it's like people are involved in sales, and I always think about those old sales pitch and those sales, you know, seminars you go to, and especially if you're selling door-to-door, I don't care if it's encyclopedias or, or vacuum cleaners, remember when that used to be done? You know, you know what they tell you, they tell you in those sales seminars that you, when you go and you knock on these doors, you know, be prepared for the 97 no's, and out of 100, if you get three yeses, then you've done pretty well. I don't want to try to put some kind of numerical value to this of preaching the gospel, but i tell you what, we know the general attitude that people can be. It's what I sometimes refer to as the Felix complex, and remember when the Apostle Paul was given opportunity to present things before Felix and his wife, about the things concerning Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, about those things that that deal with self-control and judgment to come, righteousness and all of those things. And remember that that infamous response that Felix gives. He says, go away for now. This is Acts 24, of course, and verse 25. Go away for now. When I have a convenient time or season, I will call for you. We get that people are going to do that. But don't allow that to deter us in what we need to do. But we've got to excuse ourselves sometimes from the comfort of our pews or from the comfort of our living rooms, the comfort of our homes, or from the busyness of our schedules, and we're all busy. We're all busy. People say, oh, I'm so busy. (laughs) Join the club. Everybody. We've got to excuse ourselves from that and see that it's an urgent need. I tell you, the urgency is an emergency situation. Remotes and I'm about to turn that thing off, right? I saw you can wipe the sweat now from your brow, but anyway. But I, I, there, the, I've seen in a few things, just four quick facts before we go to the next point. Fact number one is that thousands of people are dying every day without Christ, without hope. Every day. I was reading some statistic and I forget what it is. It's something like 12, 1500. I've got it in my briefcase somewhere because I went ahead and got the latest figures. That every second, in our world, you know, when we have six, seven billion people on this planet, something like that. But every second, something like 1,200 people die. And it calculates it to the second, to the minute, to the hour, to the end. It's, it's, it's phenomenal how many people die every day. We get that. Death's that reality that people don't often like to accept. That's fact number one. The urgency is an emergency because thousands die every day without hope. That should just trouble us immensely. Fact number two. Jesus could come any time. Do we know the day or the hour that the Lord is going to return? 
You know, people that like to pull out their calculators and look at prophecies and do this, that, and the other thing and try to fine-tune it that he's going to come. And You know, I've always said about that because I've been doing it forever and ever and ever. Remember that Harold Camping guy not too many years ago that said the Lord? Do you all remember that, Harold Camping? This is about, oh, six, seven years ago. And I was doing a meeting. Vicki and I were, we were driving up in Oregon. I was doing a meeting up in Eugene, Oregon, I think it was. And, uh, boy, they had posters everywhere. These big, big, uh, whatever you call it, billboards, billboards out there on the highways. Sponsored by Harold Camping and his group. And he was one of these, you know, prognosticators of saying when the Lord was going to come. And he had it right down to April, that particular year coming up. Of course, April came and the Lord didn't. He says, I miscalculated and moved it to November. And then November came and the Lord didn't. And he faded into obscurity. But people have been doing that. But here's what I say about that. One of these days, somebody's going to get it right. Okay. Because he is coming back. But the fact is, Jesus could come anytime. I want to ask you, in all seriousness, could Jesus come today? If we're not looking at it that way, we need to take another look. Fact number three. Satan is, is waiting to enter people's hearts. I mean, all this is scriptural. We know that people are dying every day. You know, death's appointed in man. We get that. Jesus could come any time. But like a thief in the night, we get that. Second Peter 3. And that Satan interferes. He, he's going to interfere wherever he can. And we've already talked about the obstacles that he uses. And there he is. In fact, I love this statement in the parable of the sower. As Jesus is giving the explanation of the parable of the sower in the Luke account, in Luke chapter 8. Listen to this carefully. And Luke 8 and verse 12. And he says about those by the wayside are the ones who hear. When the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They've allowed the influence of this world, which the devil uses, to become this interference. And I'll tell you what, they close their ears, they close their minds to truth, and that's going to happen. And Satan is very effective at what he does. We better give him his due. You give the devil his due. And what I mean by that is he knows what he's doing and he does it well, because just look at the numbers. Wouldn't you agree? And then fact number four is the world's insensitivity to sin. I do want you to look at this passage closely. Ephesians chapter 4. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 if you would, please. You see, many have lost all sensitivity to sin. And in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul highlights this. And you go to verse 17, if you will. Ephesians 4, verse 17, beginning. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. So I tell you this. And insist, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now understand that Paul so often frequently uses the words Gentiles in a very accommodative way of that which was representative of, of the world, of, of heathenism. Of, 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 that's how he, he will use that in many, many respects. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Boy, do we see that all the time. Their understanding is darkened, separated from the life of God. It's all causative because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Again, where Satan comes into the whole matter. Verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more and more. 
They've lost all sensitivity. We have this word that is used of, of, of not feeling pain. You know, we, we know what analgesics will do, and we, we, we want sometimes medicines that will help us so we don't feel pain. There are pain blockers in them. But I tell you, what happens when that spiritually goes on? You know, it's, it's a very serious condition if somebody does not have the sense of touch, a sensitivity to touch, and can't feel pain. So, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? No, it's not wonderful. Can you imagine a child being born with that and you don't know it, and that child could be underneath scalding water and not feel the pain? And how dangerous and how lethal that could be, right? But then I think about it, how many people experience exactly that when it comes to sin? They don't feel, feel it. There's no sensitivity. And you look at it in some people whose consciences are so hardened, their minds, their hearts are so hardened that they feel no sensitivity to it whatsoever. And the world's insensitivity to sin is alarming. It is imperative that we recognize the urgency of the matter. As we've considered, going back to Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why? Because the urgency is an emergency. But then, would you explore with me, please? Consider with me. Number two. And it's asking the question, will I take personal responsibility? Will I take? And in case any one of you are thinking to yourselves, well, are you preaching to me? The answer to that is pretty simple. Yes. You ever get that? Any of you have done some preaching there? You, ever, you know, I've had people through the years come up to me and after a sermon, and they, they'll ask, were you preaching to me this morning? A lot of times they'll say, you know, as a matter of fact, I had your name on the top of my outline. But in all seriousness, what I tell them, I said, of course I was. And everybody else, including myself. And all I can tell people in certain circumstances if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, and you know you're doing what you can, then don't worry about it. Understand what we have to do. But my question to you is, are we taking personal responsibility when it comes to this matter? I want you to really think about that. Will I take personal responsibility? Now, here's an interesting concept that I want to walk you through. And I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking caps here for a bit, okay? So don't zone out. This is no time to zone out. Be thinking about lunch, or be thinking about water pumps, or whatever the case is that just kind of convolutes the mind, right, Mark? Oh, I'll tell you. If you think you're going to have a baby, that's okay. Now, Kinja, <laughs> she'll be glad when I'm gone, I'll bet. But anyway, but I want you to think about this. The highest degree of involvement occurs usually when there is some kind of cataclysmic event. Disasters such as earthquakes, which are no big deal, coming from a fourth-generation Californian, please. But when they shake things up, people get concerned. But I want you to think about that. Disasters such as earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, and famines that we've seen at times worldwide. I'll tell you what those things will do, these cataclysmic things that happen in a geographical area, invoke an altruistic passion in people where people realize we got to do something and we got to work together and we got to do something about this. And so when there's something like this, 
people will rise up and to participate in relief efforts. And this was notably demonstrated not many years ago when Katrina hit the Gulf Coast, of which how many were here in Mississippi when that happened? Most of you? Good number of you, right? Now, we're out in California, and we're watching the news with it every day, and all that's going on. Two of our deacons at the time were able to get time off work, and they came. In fact, they came to Mississippi, not to Louisiana, as they worked with Red Cross and worked there close to the border and so forth, and they came to work and did volunteer work. Trucks were coming as, as we got together in our own little congregation, and we're a congregation of about 90 members, 120 maybe with kids and all, but we're a congregation. But I want to tell you that in three days, I, we collected, we collected in cash, I collected in three days from brethren. This didn't even come out of the Lord's treasury. There was some help given there later, but from brethren to help people, and especially brethren, is we're giving it to the hands of somebody who had great trust in. And I'll tell you what, in three days, we collected $13,000, and it was brought here to help brethren from one little congregation, California. So don't believe all those things you hear about California Christians, please. But I'll tell you, it was cataclysmic, and it rises up, and people, and, and, and you see, in those situations, neglect rarely enters the mind of a compassionate soul. However, emergencies do not always summon involvement. Not all emergencies. Not necessarily because of a lack of compassion, but because of a common assumption that somebody else is going to take care of the need. Let's leave the cataclysmic things, and we just talk about these little emergencies that come up, but yet they're important. They're critical, and it could be within a congregation of people in situations. There could be a need, and it could be an urgent need, some need that needed this congregation right here. And there's this unfortunate thing, this assumption that somebody else is going to take care of it. And there's this sociological phenomenon of which volumes of books have been written about it. Incredible studies have been done. And it's something that's called the diffusion of responsibility. And I want us to think about the diffusion of responsibility. And the diffusion of responsibility assumes that someone else will do it. There was something very interesting that happened in New York City, Manhattan, way back in the day, in about 1961, if memory serves me correctly. And in a tenement situation with all these tenement buildings, that there was a young lady that was being mugged, and she was and she was down down kind of by the street, and she was yelling and screaming, and she it was just horrible what was going on. And how many people that actually came to the windows and doors, and they're looking down and they're seeing exactly what is happening. And this went on for a period of time, and nobody, nobody whatsoever responded. And finally the police showed up, and then when the police began to interview people and talk about, well, did you see this? Yes, you saw this, and say, and then the question becomes, why didn't you do anything? And you know what the most common answer was? Well, we thought somebody else was going to do it. It's called the diffusion of responsibility. Now, that's a horrific thing when you talk about some poor, young, innocent lady that's being mugged like that. But here's the thing about the diffusion of responsibility. It says, sociologically, the phenomenon is this, that when people are among larger groups, and that's a really relative thing, we're kind of a, you know, compared to just a couple of people, we're a group here. 
But when people are among larger groups, there is a tendency towards less individual responsiveness due to the assumption that someone else will take the action or take the responsibility. And essentially, everybody's business becomes nobody's business. You think about that. That everybody's business becomes nobody's business. While it is true that there is strength in numbers, and ought to be, the greatest obstacle is the assumption that somebody else is performing the needed work. And it reminds me of the little illustration that no doubt some of you have heard. But it's about four people in the church. Four people in the church. And they're named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. You see, it seems that there was an important job to be done in the congregation. And everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Now, somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job, but everybody thought anybody would do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. Stay with me. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. I think you get the point. Maybe we better start asking ourselves, well, who am I? Am I somebody? Am I anybody? Am I everybody or part of it? Or am I nobody? Brethren, all I can say is that instead of diffusing our duty, and I'm asking, and I say this to my congregation all the time, I'm asking, please, please do not lay the entirety of this great critical need of sharing the gospel in our community just on me. Help. Help. Do you have friends you can talk to? Do you have fellow workers you can talk to? Do you have fellow students you can talk to? What's your circumstance? I have been doing this for years and years. I preach, as I said, I've been preaching for 42 years. I preach on an a- I teach on an average somewhere between 10 and 12 home Bible classes every week. Every week. Some of them start, I've got them Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. They start at 6.30, 6.45, and 7.30 in the morning in my office. We've had going in our congregation for nearly 30 years, a Tuesday night class, and I'd just go to the congregation and say, what are you doing on Tuesday nights? Let's start having a study, and we have a Bible study, and brethren come, and we say, what about your friends, or what about your neighbors, what about your family? I'd say probably, what, for a dozen years anyway, maybe 15, I guess now, we do a Cambria class on, on Saturday mornings. And by the way, with these now, we've also, because of the circumstance, but we'll continue to do it, we're Zooming them as well, and people are joining in, and we share those links with anybody. Morning, noon, or night, I don't just make any difference, we're going to work it in, we're going to work it in, and I want to tell you that you get, but you've got to get excited as the brethren, and you've got to get that involvement. You've got to work together, and you've got to, you've, and you know what? You've got to make the sacrifices and take the time. I say to you right now, without fear of contradiction, if you're not willing to make the sacrifice and to take the time, but think that it's just going to kind of happen, somehow it's going to happen because we're going to meet together, we're going to have this group, or we're going to get a little facility to meet together and all of that, and just think that somehow you're going to get somebody to come in here and it'll just happen and they'll do it. It won't. 
Instead of diffusing our duty, we must see the urgency of Christ's perpetual commission. How many times have we heard through the years, even as we kind of go to the old King James Version, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, but that go ye means go me. I think there's some real validity to that. That go ye means go me. And we know Paul was saying that to the apostles, but do we think that this was to stop with the apostles? And even during the apostolic times, what do we see? We see that in discipleship and discipling, if we can dare use that phrase, and I'm not talking anything about the world, the, the international churches of Christ or the old crosswords movement, I do not want to be misunderstood on that. But I tell you what, we need to see the importance of disciples making disciples with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and go ye means go me. We get that from the Great Commission. Take this personally. And with that, then we understand. We need to have that spirit of Isaiah, and a great work needed to be done. And here you have God, God speaking, and even as God's dealing with himself, and I suppose the personages of the deity, and the Lord is asking, whom shall we send? This has got to be done. And here's a young man, a young man at the time by the name of Isaiah, an interesting, interesting Old Testament character, but a man of fervor and a man of, of, of commitment and dedication. And so we need to have that spirit of Isaiah. And the Lord had asked, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, how? Here am I, send me. That's a song we used to sing quite a bit. I haven't heard in a while. Here am I, send me. Not, here's Evan, send him. I told you you're going to sit here. You're going to give it a lot. But here am I, send me. Well, this brings us to our final point. But I hope that we get this, this whole, this danger of the diffusion of responsibility. Does that make sense? That assumption? Take it to heart, brethren. I'm just going to say this. Preachers always get in trouble when they do this, right? I'm not going off on a rabbit trail. I'm just going to tell you. You know, when Mark called me here, I don't know when that was, last year, I guess, sometime. I don't know when it was. And we were having a little family gathering out in the patio behind the house. And, and I get this phone call, and I look at the, you know, caller ID, and it says Mark Lewis. And I thought, well, what does that rascal want, right? <laughs> and I go, Mark, what's going on, brother? He says, well, I just want to know if you come and hold us a gospel meeting. And he's talking about Andrews. And my son said something about, you know that preacher in California? He may come out and hold a gospel meeting. But I'll tell you the thing I really remember about that. When we decided we're going to do this, I'm talking to Mark, and he says, you know what, this is a good group of people. He says, Brent, do what you can to tell them like it is. He says, and, and they can take it, and they will take it to heart. And, 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 and I believe that. And I want you to know, I'm saying to you from the bottom of my heart as much sincerity as I can possibly humanly muster. I'm telling you, brethren, all of us in any congregation that's represented here, all of us need to take this personally and take it to heart. Right? Now, to our third point. The wisdom of soul winning. Oh, I tell you, I love Proverbs 11.30. I love Proverbs of 11.30 and the wisdom of the Proverbs of Solomon. And he makes a very interesting statement in Proverbs 11.30 with all these proverbial sayings, and I've got a Bible class going on right now that we're methodically going through the Proverbs, and we're about, oh man, where are we? I think we're about chapter 18 now, if memory serves me correctly. 
But in any case, it's just these gems that are in there. But in Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Now that, to begin with, is interesting because the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. We often think of the fruit of the tree. I want you to really cogitate that. You've got to kind of work through that. And there's an intentionality here that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Now, if this is written to godly people as it was intended to be, and if this has any meaning and application for us today, which it ought to, Romans 15, 4 says those things written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience of the comfort of the Scripture might have. Hope, remember that passage, Romans 15, 4? I would suggest to you very strongly that it has great application for us today as well in its spiritual principle. Indeed, who are the righteous? And if we are to be the righteous and the fruit of the righteous, what is fruit? Fruit is a byproduct. Fruit is a byproduct. We get that. We have trees. We have fruit trees. And it may be an apple tree. It may be a cherry tree. It may be a lemon tree. But fruit is that byproduct. We look at it. But as you look at the wording here, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And I'll tell you what we're offering. When we think of a tree of life, normally when we think of a tree of life, where, where do our minds kind of normally go back to? How about the Garden of Eden, right? Now, there was the, the, tree, the tree bearing the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit, which they messed that up royally, right? But what they had access to, evidently, was the tree of life. But when they're cast out of the Garden of Eden, because of the sin, they were barricaded, if you will, from going back into the Garden of Eden, and their deity says that lest they partake of the tree of life and live forever. And that kind of tells us something there, doesn't it? So when you look at this, in this proverbial wisdom, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. If we're the righteous and what we are offering by our life and by the narrative of Scripture, by the Bible teaching, and in our circumstances, Christians, the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ I'll tell you what, what we are offering to people, we are showing to people, and it can only be done by, by the fruit of our righteousness as the tree of life. When we share the gospel and show people the gospel, take them the gospel, we're giving to them and showing them, here's the tree of life. Here's the tree of life. Partake. Partake. Do we get it? But then it gets even more interesting. Yes, the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Lakach. If you're going to say that right, okay, that, that, that's, that's a kaf in Hebrew. And you gotta, you got to get a little glob right here, i just got to tell you right now. But it's lakach. Very interesting word to take something, to capture it, can even have the idea of conquering. You see, he who wins souls is wise. In fact, one lexicon says to take something to fetch it, even to capture it. And here's the idea that there are souls that have been lost to Satan. We need to win them back, recapture them, if you will. It's a word that is used a good handful of times in the Old Testament Hebrew text. But you'll find at times where an army goes in and they become victorious and then they capture these people. And it really becomes as it were and they capture their goods. 
And you know what? It becomes a winning situation. What they have won for themselves. It's a very interesting word in the way that it's found in its usages. Again, we look at this and there are souls that have been lost to Satan. And what are we going to do to capture them, to win them back? And so it brings us to another interesting passage, and that's found in Daniel, also in the Old Testament, of course, in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. And there it puts it this way, those who are wise will shine like the sun, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And we've kind of talked about already in the first session about this, in in, in earlier on, I should say, in Philippians 215 about shining as stars in the universe, shining as, as lights in, in, in the heavens. Now in, in the Peshitta, in the Syriac version, that how this reads in the original Peshitta version, let me just read this to you. It says, those that do good and are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and those who conquer many shall be lights and arise as the stars of heaven forever and ever. And it's not talking about just conquering nations from some military army way. It's talking about, you know, that conquering the souls of people. The wise conqueror, the wise will conquer souls by their own righteous example, and thus shine as those stars of the heavens, as we find in Daniel 12, 3, which makes me often wonder if Paul even had that in his mind, as he said what he said, as we've talked about in Philippians 2, 15. Very, very interesting in the wisdom of soul winning. He who wins souls is wise. Well, I just want to say this very quickly, too. We could ask the question, well, why is one wise? Well, we've already talked about because thousands are dying every day and they need to be retrieved. They need to be saved. But also think about it. He who wins souls is wise. And the reason why is wise because, brethren, and you just really think about this. If we don't do it, who will? Are we going to just go ahead and allow the denominations to capture the souls? Are we just going to go ahead and allow the world's narrative and humanism and whatever else is out there to capture the souls? And our society is becoming vastly more and more multicultural and all kinds of religions and philosophies have come in and are we going to allow the Muslims to do it? Well, whomever, you just pick it. I'll tell you why we're wise, because do we have the truth? Do we have the truth of the Scripture, and are we trying to herald forth the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Of course we're wise. Now, that brings us to our final passage. Turn, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We leave the Hebrew, we're going to go to the Greek, we're going to look at the Greek word, kerdano. Kerdano. And we're going to find its employment five times in this text. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and the Apostle Paul, as he continues his own theme of winning souls in this epistle to the Corinthians, beginning of verse 19, Paul says, and many of you are very familiar with this text, but in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. 
To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now understand, when he uses this Greek word, credeno, win, 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 he thereby then equates that to the end as being winning souls is bringing souls to what? A position or place of salvation that they might be saved. Five times he uses Cardano. To win, to gain is what it means. Vine says in his expository dictionary of winning souls into the kingdom of God by the gospel. W. Vine, a denominationalist, understood that. A Greek scholar that he was. But he understood that it's winning souls into the kingdom of God by the gospel. And Paul looks at his own life. And this is the challenge to us, brethren. Paul looks at his own life. And he became all things to all men. That this in some way, in all of his might, that he might win, 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 win. That by all means that he might save some. And so, in our lives... As we encounter others, we must view them as souls that need to be urgently won for Christ. You know, you, you hate to use kind of marketing type of analogy sometimes. And again, you know, putting things to numerical values and all those kinds of things. But there are things that we relate to. We, we connect to that. And i tell you how, and, and it, was just, it was just very, very, very much just ingrained in me when I was about 22 years old and came under the influence in a very good and positive way. Mostly, Carrie, by Carrie's uncle, Brother Maurice Estes. Gary knew Maurice well. In fact, you know, you all knew Maurice. And he was a powerful personality, I'll tell you. Terrific gospel preacher. Good thinker. Good thinker. Probably one of the most natural exegetes that I've ever, ever encountered. But he just kept pounding me. He said, Brother, everybody out there is a prospect for Christ. We're all prospects. And when we stop looking at people, these souls as prospects, then again, we need to regroup. You see, this is what we've got to do. They are more than just neighbors and friends and family neighbor, uh, members and business associates and fellow students and peers. They are prospects for the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you all sing that song from time to time that we are the world's Bible? No hands? but our hands, no feet, but our feet. I mean, you just look at all of the personifications that are given. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of people, they're not going to crack open a Bible, but we become the Bible to them when we live as we should and take this seriously. I want to ask you, if you were notified today and told that somebody very close to you was missing, even as I received that, a horrible phone call initially yesterday, and I don't even know this young lady. And I tell you, Vicky and I, we, we just looked at each other when I told Vicky what Sam. She said, what's up with Sam? And I told her. I mean, our hearts not only sunk. I tell you, I got sick to my stomach, right? And what great, what great joy there was when Sam got back here a couple hours later and said, it's going to be okay. She's been found and she's fine. She's safe and not hurt in any way. And I suppose there'll be some issues that got to be worked with. And we pray for them. But you know, that's how souls are with people too, right? We, but we've got to bring the Lord, and people, we bring people to the Lord. And by the way, they come to the Lord with baggage. We live in a broken world, folks. We live in a broken world. 
And Jesus didn't say, well, but by the way, my burden is heavy. No, he said it's light. We, we live in a broken world, and we just need to show people what the gospel can do to people and how liberating it can become and help them. I get back to this question. If you were notified today and told that someone very close to you was missing, how urgent would you consider the situation and what measures would you take to find that precious soul? And I close with this as I want to just share a story with you about Kevin. I remember this vividly, and this happened 51 years ago when I was 16 years old. I'm 67 years old. And I was a, a counselor, kind of a junior counselor. My brother was a senior counselor. He's five years older than I am. At a very special camp, a, a camp for special kids that had both mental and some physical handicaps in this camp up in the Cambria Pines, as a matter of fact. The old what had been at one time a YCF. It's been several things, things but uh, we're at this camp. And, and Randy Harris, whose dad was the one that ran the whole thing, but Randy and I went to school together, same class, and, we had a cabin of guys, about eight guys. And one of the fellows in that cabin, his name was Kevin. Kevin was about 14 or 15 years old, but had already reached the height of six foot. Tall boy. Now, Kevin did have, he had some mental handicaps. But he also was severely epileptic. And he took 32 forms of medication, 32 forms of medication every day, from morning, noon to night. Uh, he walked around the camp at all times wearing a football helmet. Not because he thought it was, although I think he kind of thought it was pretty cool as the kid, but because I can remember one time at lunch, he went into an epileptic seizure and fell right over backwards and hit his head right on the concrete floor, but thankfully he had the football helmet on and he was fine. Well, on the last night of the camp, which was always a Friday night before the next group would come in, they would leave on Saturday. Another group would come in the, that Saturday, next Saturday. But on Friday night, we'd have this big campfire, very much like you see in the picture here. And there were several cabins, and we're all there, and there's a lot of kids there and counselors and so forth, and, you know, and roasting, roasting marshmallows and, you know, singing and doing all the things that you do in these situations. And, and this is a hard kid to miss. I mean, he was the tallest of all the campers, wearing a football helmet, for crying out loud. And all of a sudden, I started looking around, and Randy wasn't too far from me, my fellow counselor for that cabin. And I got Randy's attention. I said, where's Kevin? Where's Kevin? Now, we're nestled within the pines, but as you go through those pines, and as you go up over the hill not very far, you come right down to the Pacific Ocean. I'm telling you, not but probably a half a mile from where Janice Seeley lives. Carrie. Carrie's got that envisioned there. And I tell you, it comes right on down, just probably, like I said, a quarter, half a mile south of that to a cliff in the Pacific Ocean. We knew we had a problem, and as I had to tell my brother, we had to tell the, the, the camp facilitator, Mr. Harris, all of a sudden, you've got a bunch of people that are very concerned, and we're going around the whole camp area, and, and these cabins are in various places right in, nestled in the woods, and Kevin and Kevin, and pretty soon we understood, no, this problem is bigger than, than what we wanted it to be. And we're able to get to the phone down at the office, and next thing you know, we've got San Luis Obispo County search and rescue there. 
And we've got deputy sheriff and search and rescue, and we've got people from all over the place, and we are coming and going through those through those woods, and then going out into this this pasture that takes you out by by an old barn and back where I'm talking about going down the Pacific Ocean. Kevin, 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 and we're yelling and we're just doing everything we can. And I want to tell you, this is one terrified sixteen-year-old. One of the men with search and rescue. <laughs> Saw what a beautiful scene. The setting, if you're there, you look, and here's this barn, and not very far is this the beauty of this Pacific Ocean right there. It's a gorgeous setting, but a dangerous setting. But he goes ahead and he goes into the barn. And this is after hours, it's getting into the early morning hours. And he goes into the barn, and there nestled in the corner, curled up on the hay. The football helmet all is Kevin curled up and sound asleep. And he got his attention. He was hungry and badly in need of medication. But I want to tell you, praise God, we found him. And this was one 16-year-old that learned a valuable lesson that day that I'll never, ever forget. Never. But how tragic it is that there are people in the world that are lost. And maybe sometimes we don't even give it a thought. And that lost condition even exceeds the one poor Kevin. Will we please, please, please take this personally and take this seriously and do what we can I thank you for your good, good attention. Perhaps your own situation is urgent. I do not know. Let's sing a song of invitation. Jesus is tenderly calling you home. Right? We're doing that song just a moment. Yes, sir. And he is calling us. And he calls us by the gospel. And if there are any here that need to render obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have an opportunity to do that today. If you need to sit down with an open Bible, then let's do that. There's plenty of good people here that can share Scripture with you. Whatever your need may be spiritually, maybe there's other kinds of needs, but, but I'm just saying to you, we've got to make sure that we ourselves very personally are in right standing with God through the Gospel. Let's make sure of that, and let's do all that we can to help others. But if we can help any this day in a spiritual need, an opportunity is given now as we stand, as we sing this song. That has been selected. Jesus is-